Good morning, everybody. Uh, I did not introduce myself before. My name is Tom, and I lead our team here at Crossroads, and we are wrapping up a series that we've called uh, The Problem of God, and which it's been loosely structured after a book of the same name, Problem of God, by Mark Clark. And we covered lots of different material from our God and science in, uh, in combat with each other. Does God even exist? What do we do with evil and suffering? Did the resurrection really happen? We talked about tough topics like sex and exclusivity and hypocrisy. And throughout that whole period of time, I was encouraging you, our other teachers were encouraging you to submit questions that you've had. And so through the internet, and some, some people wrote them down, um, pen and paper, we have several questions that we're going to try to try to address this morning. Um, there's lots here, so I'm going to try to get through as much as I can and still do each of the topics justice. So um, the first one actually came in in a list and asked for a request to do a similar series, and it just listed a bunch of topics. So the first one of those, I, we're probably not going to do a series very similar to this for a while, so I wanted to try to, to hit some of those up front. Um, the first one, Nate, could you bring that up for me? Good. So the first one was demon possession. I'm going to start light. Just <laughs> um, so depending on what kind of background you have, church background, no church background, um, the idea of demon possession might seem like something from the movies, something that's just not, like, we don't need to pay attention to, ridiculous mythology, whatever. Um, but the reality of it is that um, there is a spiritual realm that we don't see. Uh, when God created everything, he created the earthly realm and he created a heavenly realm. And things like angels and demons are real and they exist and they exist in this heavenly realm that we do not see. Um, angels are God's helpers. They work alongside God at his direction for his glory, for our good, to help execute God's plan. Demons, on the other hand, are, they were created angels, but they rebelled against God with Satan. And so now their mission in life is to try to thwart God's plan, to get in the way of what God is trying to do and to get in the way of his people trying to follow him and to do everything they can to hinder glory being given to God. And one of the ways they do that is that possession Right? And yes, I believe it still does happen today. And it's when um, we no longer have control, we're being influenced, our behaviors or the things we think and say and do are being controlled by, by a demon. Now, I will say this. Um, I think it's incredibly rare for it to happen in the Western world. And I think there's some reasons for that. It happens a lot more in, in the developing world. Um, we tend to struggle more with the false gods of sex and money and power and comfort and our children's success. And those are the things that steer and guide and direct us and inf influence our behavior rather than um, uh, necessarily a demon possession. That being said, I do believe that it, it still happens. And as I was praying through these questions, um, I felt compelled to to ask Jesus for insight as to why somebody might ask a specific question. And when it came to this, I think just it's a topic of fear, right? It's something that is scary. The representations in the movie, the movies are scary. Um, what we think about, we can conjure up all kinds of stuff that is, is scary. But the bottom line is for those 
following Jesus, there is, there is nothing, nothing to fear. I want to read you a couple pieces of scripture. This is, I think this is Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Jesus. Jesus defeated, disarmed the powers and authorities. That's the powers and authorities in that heavenly realm that I was talking about. So they've already lost. They have to lie to themselves every day when they wake up to get themselves to do their job, to think that they're fighting this battle that they could win somehow. Jesus beat them on the cross, and when he rose, when he rose triumphantly. Is the reference up there? Yeah, 1 John 4, 4, great. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is the Holy Spirit. When we get to a point in our walk of faith when we want to follow Jesus more than anything else and we ask him into our heart and we ask for his forgiveness, the part of God called the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. The Holy Spirit, the church around the world today celebrates something called Pentecost where it was when the Holy Spirit fell on, on the disciples. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with Jesus, co-equal with the Father. Same power, same ability, same knowledge, and the Holy Spirit resides in each one of you who call yourself a follower of Jesus. That power resides within you. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. From 2 Corinthians 3.17. The way I roughly defined possession was that we were not free. We were held hostage. For those who have the Holy Spirit, there is only freedom. There is freedom from anything that might bind you from the things that I listed, sex, money, power, comfort. We don't have to be held captive by those things. We don't have to be held... We, Here's what I would say. From my studies, right, I don't think it's possible for a follower of Christ to be possessed because I don't think a demon can reside in the same place as the God of the universe. They're terrified of him, and I don't think they would put themselves in that position. So the bottom line is this, is that as followers of Christ, trying to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, we have nothing to fear. It's kind of the, the rough thumbnail sketch of demon possession. And you guys, I'm, I'm happy to have conversations about any of this stuff. I love coffee. Invite me out to coffee. We'll have a conversation. We'll drill down further in this. I'm kind of doing like a top line, trying to address each of these as best I can in a, in a short amount of time. All right. Gossip. So let's just define it first, right? Gossip, when you talk about somebody behind their back, when they're not present, you say something about them. You tell lies about other people. You celebrate somebody else's failure when they're not around. Somebody does something that hurts you, and instead of going to them and calling them on it, you go to somebody else and you talk trash about them. Not even talk trash about them, you just bring it up with somebody else. All of those, I think, would fall under the realm of gossip, the definition of gossip. And so we're totally clear, let's make no mistake about it, gossip is one of the biggies. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. 
Instead of speaking, oh, sorry, we're going to jump to that one. Um, that's the next verse. So it's right up there with the big ones. We should not downplay gossip. It's divisive. It's hurtful. It not only does damage to a single other person, in a community like this, it can tear a community apart. Instead, I would encourage you to just take a look at, the, at Ephesians chapter 4. I pulled out a couple verses, but most of Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how we should live our life as followers of Christ. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speak the truth in love. No lies, nothing made up, nothing embellished, no celebration of somebody else's failures. Still in chapter 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This concept of being members of one body is so integral, so critical to God's work in the local church. And one of the ways that Satan works to destroy the local church is through this idea of gossip. So when we gossip, when we talk badly about somebody else, when we don't take care of our issues directly with them, we do damage to the body of Christ. And we need to view it as that way and instead put off those falsehood, falsehoods and just speak truth. Last verse here. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Right? So just like mom said when you were a little kid, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. Think about that, right? Think about if you went through your day, if you were only to say that which was positive, that which was building somebody up, that which was encouraging. That sort of takes out that whole deal of sarcasm. I would be left with about 3% of my words. Um, but I mean, really, that's something that I, my sarcastic edge, I need to, I need to work on. Um, so we went through the book of James, and David shared a couple different times on, on communication and listening and speaking. And I think it really comes back to that verse in James, be slow to anger, right? Be slow to speak quick to listen. If we slow down long enough to check our motives, what, if, what am I about to say? Is that going to be for this person's good or somebody else's good? Is that going to be helpful? Is it going to shine a brighter light on Jesus and make him easier to see? Or is it going to obscure him and make him more difficult for others to see? Slow down, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I'm not banging on anything. That was accidental. I really, my, my ideal, I don't have a whole lot of peripheral over here, so I may do that again. All right, um, now we're going to move into, oh no, there's one, I think there's one more. Yeah, okay. Can you please address the topic of environmentalism? Does the Bible teach us that we have a responsibility to care for God's creation? So really, God addresses this one right off the bat. Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them 
and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. As we think about this idea of environmentalism, these verses point out a couple of different things, right? They point out God's hierarchy of creation. There's God. It was before anything existed. God created man and gave man direction. God created man in his image. He charged man to care for his creation. God's creation is, is a gift that is, we need to manage just like any other gift that we need to view just like any other gift. And some have kind of um, misinterpreted, misapplied this. And I want to read you this quote. This is, from the, this is just from the study notes in the ESV Bible. These commands are not, however, a mandate to exploit the earth and its creatures to satisfy human greed. For the fact that Adam and Eve were in the image of God implies God's expectation that human beings will use the earth wisely and govern it with the same sense of responsibility and care that God has toward the whole of creation. Right, so that's, that's pretty clear. God's creation is a gift to us. All of God's gifts point back to him. They point back to some facet of his character, some facet of what he does. And when we look at creation, when we look at trees and plants and animals and how it all works together and even our natural resources, they represent, think about the different aspects of God's character that they represent. They represent creativity. They represent diversity. They represent his generosity and providing for us in that way. They represent, God has a, a sense of of whimsy and a sense of humor. If you don't believe me, come spend a couple hours with my dogs. They're, they're ridiculous. Think about like the breadth of creation, a platypus. Who does that, yeah. right? <clears throat> they're a representation of God and who he is and who his character. And like anything else, God gives them to us to manage well, to, to, to use a church word, to steward well. And we will be held accountable for every gift that's been given to us, including the environment. Um, uh, when we think about, there's like a little uh, a detour that can happen when you hear the term environmentalism. And it's the, like the, it, it gets tossed around in politics and it gets used as a political lever. I'm not sure if this is the right slide that's going to come up. Okay. So I struggle saying this word, anthropocentrism. Regarding humankind as the central or most important element of existence, especially as opposed to God or to animals. So the, the opposing sides in the environmentalist debate would say that nature is the preeminent thing, that nature was here before us and we got it, that everything should be geared at nature. Humanists say mankind is the center of everything and if, if we burn the world down fulfilling our needs, so be it. That's harsh, but it's a rough... Um, Biblically, God is the center of, of everything, the central and most important element. 
So it's important not to confuse what the Bible says about environmentalism. We are to neither deify, we're not to make a God out of the environment or creation, nor are we to abuse it. All right. Abortion. So um, this is a political football. Um, it is a, a minefield. And let me, let me start out by saying this. I am not anti-anything. And I've used that phrase before, and I've been disparagingly called a liberal because I've said I'm not anti-anything. I've also been disparagingly called a conservative because the way I read scripture informs me that abortion is not part of God's plan. There's lots of scripture that I could point out, but I just want to look at one. This is Psalm 139, uh, starting in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. <clears throat> so, the, the issue of abortion is, um, while, while I find scripture to be clear in its direction, it's complex, and it, um, it's emotional, and it's, it can be hard to discuss without things getting heated and, and nasty. Um, so I would, I would ask you, as you think about this issue, um, to think about those. I have friends who have had to just make gut-wrenching decisions about abortion. I've had friends who have had to make just as gut-wrenching decisions about making a plan to place their child with an adopted family. I also recognize that I'm in a little bit of a unique position in that both of my, I was gonna say children, my young men um, were adopted. We adopted them at birth. And there's nothing I could ever do to repay or to say thank you to their birth mothers for the decisions that they made. Right? So like I said, it's not just a straight up political thing. It's not, scripture's clear, but it's complicated. So I would encourage you to pull out your Bibles, to ask the Holy Spirit for his leading, and to read scripture. In my notes, um, which will go up online at crossroadct.info, there's gonna be a bunch of resources. All the verses um, that the Bible talks about will be in there. There's gonna be a link to some articles, some really interesting stuff. There's a, actually a course on the sanctity of life um, that's put together by the Gospel Coalition, so you can go through it kind of step by step. So I would encourage you to check that out on your own during the week. What I would encourage you not to do is to inform your opinions about this topic from sound bites and memes. To not inform your opinions about this topic based on your political ideology or affiliation. I am in X party, so I need to think X, Y, and Z. Please do not do that. This is way, way too important. Our authority is the, the Bible and what God, what God has to say in the Bible. And I would encourage you to check that out. 
specifically do research on the topic. Um, I would also ask that as you think about the idea of abortion, that you think about the gift of life in totality that God has provided for us. That means that you would do your research on capital punishment, that you would do your research on end of life issues, that you would do your research and figure out if God views somebody born under a different flag of a lesser value than somebody born in this country. Abortion is not an issue in isolation. It is, it is a huge issue and it's tragic, but you, you, got, you have to look at totality. God gave us the gift of life and we have to examine it from every, from every angle. All right, getting easier and easier. How do we deal with homosexuality when it could be someone you look up to or love? For instance, you say you look up to an athlete who has come out. Does looking up to or being a fan of that person for their amazing athleticism tell people that you are a supporter of how they live their life? Or, I didn't change that. I love, this is like stream of consciousness. That's, you could just hear the person like thinking that. Or, what if you have a family member who is LGBTQ? You love them and you want them to be themselves, but how do you support them without supporting them? Great questions, great questions. So I'm gonna address the, the athlete part first. Athleticism is a gift from God, right? Especially at the level of athletes who would have fans, absolutely. Appreciate, go ahead and appreciate the athleticism that, that, somebody, that somebody has. If, however, as a fan, you shape your life around an athlete, a rock star, a movie star, I would say just stop and check yourself. It's okay to support their athleticism and their gifts. Gifts are God-given. Um, but so when I, when I coach or I teach or I talk to people about being in mentoring relationships or in, in discipling relationships, I, I say, or even when I'm, I'm trying to mentor somebody, I say, look, look at the Jesus that you see in me and imitate that because I have flaws and I have bad habits and I do things that I wish I hadn't done. So read your Bible, study the person of Jesus so you can recognize Jesus. And then when you see that Jesus, whether it be a mentor or in somebody who's far off, whether it be in God's creation and giftedness or in the character of God that they represent, yes, absolutely appreciate them. Second part of that question, a family member who maybe has a homosexual lifestyle. Um, so again, right, it's not, it's not just, um, there's emotion tied into it. There's, there's people's lives, there's relationships that, that are tied into this. We did, in the series, we did a, a message on sex and a message on exclusivity. They're kind of like parts, parts one and two of how to love folks who think, act, behave differently than we do. So if you have a chance, go back and watch those because it'll go into a lot more detail. I'm just gonna do a little bit right now. And the first thing um, I would suggest is that you start by being a decent human being. Um, it, and it, you know, it depends on what, what stage of this relationship is or if the person has just come out to you or if you've known this for a while. 
but I would encourage you to validate your relationship, to let them know that you love them. There's a family member we're talking about, right? That you love them and that you're not going anywhere, that you are still, you're still there in their life and you want, you want to be in their life. Um, then we get to the, this idea of, of grace and truth. So we, we earn the right to, to be heard. And maybe it's, you've been in a relationship, so maybe you've already earned that right to be heard. But if it's like a cousin or something, maybe somebody you don't see that often, I'm gonna repeat something that I said, I think it was in the James series. Relationship is the antidote to judgment. If you come in and you drop a truth bomb on a relative that you don't see all that often, or you just drop a truth bomb on a relative that just came out to you, you're gonna shut them down, you're gonna turn them away, and whatever shot you may have had for sharing Jesus with them at some point has just been minimized exponentially. So we have grace and truth. And in those earlier messages, I encouraged us to occupy this really awkward, uncomfortable tension that exists between grace and truth um, because the, the world will, will pull us in these different polarizing directions. And the, the, when it does that, the world, like we look at social media, any kind of media, and unfortunately, what we see the majority of is the loudest and the most extreme voices. We don't get moderate, middle-of-the-road positions. We don't get people who educate themselves on both sides of an issue. We get extremes. We're called to occupy that tough ground in the middle where we do our research on both sides. And the other thing that happens when we look to the media to inform us and to instruct us is it's, um, it's incredibly, it's just incredibly destructive. It tears us down and it makes us look at somebody with an opposing viewpoint, regardless of who they are and what the rest of their life might look like, as the worst person ever. Because that's where we're at in culture right now and we have got to stand in the middle of grace and truth. So for a, a family member, a close friend, validate the relationship, earn the right to be heard, be a decent human being, invest in the relationship, and then pray that God would create an opportunity for you to share his love and his grace and his mercy with whoever that person is. And that that person would come to know Jesus. And then Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father will do their work in that person and their timing. Tough, tough, tough issue, but it calls us to that tough, tough ground just like Jesus did over and over and over again. All right. If God tells us to love, then why is it not okay to give your significant other all of your love even before a formal marriage ceremony? Did they even have ceremonies back in Jesus' day? I'm sure they didn't have rings and marriage licenses, etc. All right, so I'm gonna cover the second half of that first. So the whole like premarital process was way more complicated back then than it is now. Oftentimes marriages were arranged, um, but there was uh, a year, at least a year long period called a betrothal. And during that time it was basically 
for the couple to, to get prepared, um, the, the groom would basically go put an addition on his dad's house and get ready to, to welcome his new wife into, into the family. What's really interesting is that that betrothal was legally just as much binding as the marriage. If you think about the story of Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary were not married, right? But it says Joseph thought about divorcing Mary because she was found to be with child. It was just as binding. So if you think like back in the day, oh, they didn't, like, they didn't have to do any of this stuff. They could just get married and get to it. it they had more rationale back then. Like we're, we're married legally, but we don't get to enjoy the sex part. Right, so that whole kind of, yes, the, the back in the day, it was, there was ceremony. How about this part? The wedding feast itself was like, could have been as long as a week, and the couple didn't even get to consummate the wedding on the first night. It may have been like the second or third night. So, that's that part. Um, in terms of today, I would suggest to you, again, Scripture as our, as our guide, um, it, it comes down to your view of marriage and sex. Both of those things, God created sacred. He created them for our enjoyment. And they're not just the, the practicality, the physical enjoyment. Um, like all of God's gifts, like I said earlier with the environmental piece, they point to something. They point to part of his character. They're symbolic, right? Our marriages are a symbol of the marriage of Christ and his church. The act of sex is a reminder of, yes, the marriage covenant, that when there's physical relationship, it reminds us of the promises that we made and why we're together with this person. Um, But it also, in a very small way, points to the inexpressible joy that we will have in heaven when we are together with Jesus for eternity, However joyful sex might be, heaven is exponentially, whatever exponentially exponentially is, that's what heaven will be. So it's, it's not, um, it's a pointer, it's a greater reflection of, of who Jesus is, as are um, all of his gifts. And let me just say this kind of anecdotally. Um, if you hold off, I guarantee you 25 years from now, you're not going to look back and regret the fact that you held off until you were married. Guarantee it. There aren't many guarantees in life. That one I will guarantee. At the same time, if the person you're with now turns out not to be the one, I guarantee you you're going to be even happier 25 years from now that you decided to stay out of bed. Um, last piece on this. And the the data is not 100% clear, but there's some really, really interesting research that suggests that um, the, the fewer sexual partners we have prior to marriage, the higher our marriage success rate. With those who are um, virgins on their wedding night having the most marriage success rate, meaning no, no divorce. So again, the links to that are in, in my notes if you wanna go, if you wanna check that stuff out. All right, this is the, the last question we're going to cover, and it's got two pieces. Why is God so different between Old and New Testaments, especially about animal sacrifice? I'm going to cover the animal sacrifice 
part first, and then we'll talk about if God is different or not between, between the Testaments. Um, and I'm going to read two portions of Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The New one is really long, but hang with me. If you have a Bible, open it up. Um, it's in Hebrews chapter 9. I would encourage you to, to follow along. But basically, the blood and the animal sacrifice was about a symbol for keeping a covenant, right? God made these arrangements, and in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 17, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So in the Old Testament, there was this elaborate, elaborate series of, of uh, animal sacrifices that had to be conducted throughout the year, some of them annually. And as you read through the pages of the Old Testament, I, I can't imagine like what, like physically just a mess because it wasn't just like animal sacrifice and they, like blood was sprinkled on people and it was sprinkled on the altar. And, but the point of it being that where there was a fence, there was blood that was needed to cover the offense. And I mean, we can get into some of the, why it was at that extreme because when a, a, an infinite God is offended by a finite people, their ne- blood is what brings about the atonement for one's life. That system, those sacrifices had to be performed repeatedly because the, what was being sacrificed was not perfect. Move forward into the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And basically, that's what these, the verses in uh, Hebrews are going to say when I read them. So just hang, hang in there with me as we, as we go through. He, Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free, from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. That's, he was talking about all the contents of the, the tabernacle where these sacrifices were performed. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place 
every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So that was a big chunk of scripture, but basically Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He came and he replaced that whole system and he did it once for all. He hung on the cross and he carried the weight of the sin of all time prior to him, his current day and future. And he bore it on that cross and he died. But because of that perfect life that he lived, death could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And there he is, the perfect sacrifice who made an atonement for us. That Jesus in the New Testament that we think of as love and grace and mercy is the same as the God of the Old Testament. We look at passages like Exodus 34 that talks about the loving kindness of God. Moses asks God, what's your name? He says, this is my name, the Lord, the Lord. And he's known for generations by his loving kindness and his forgiveness. New Testament, 1 John chapter 4, God is love. The Bible in its entirety is one story, and it's consistent, regardless of who is speaking, when they were speaking, or from where they were speaking. And it's all about Jesus. In a second here, I'm going to run a video, and we're going to wrap things up. You guys go ahead and hit the shades and the lights. Um, This whole deal is about Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's what the series pointed to. Um, This video is is great. Just take a minute. It's only like three minutes long, but enjoy this. The band is going to be making their way up here while the video is running so we can uh, enter into a time of worship after the video is 